0: Acknowledgement of Country I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, work and study the Iwabical and Waramai people I would like to extend that to the land on which our listeners meet on. I pay my most heartfelt respect to elders past, present and emerging. Listener discretion is advised. The topics we discuss in this podcast may be disturbing to some. If you feel confronted by anything discussed in today's episode, please contact Lifeline or the university's free counselling service. This episode is dedicated to Daniel Morcom and all victims of child abuse. May their voices be heard. Welcome back to the Your Way Crim podcast. I'm your host, Isabella Krebit, and in today's episode, we're investigating post-conviction review and the case of Kathleen Folbig. I'm John with Rani Rago. Rani, how are you?
1: I'm great, Isabella. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you so much. Rani, please tell us about yourself.
1: Okay, so I am a solicitor. Um, I'm also a sessional academic and PhD candidate at the University of Newcastle Law School. I um, obviously hold a Bachelor of Laws and a uh, of Legal Practice and I also have a Bachelor of Social Science.
0: How did you become involved in the area of post-conviction review?
1: Well, I've always had an interest in criminal law, in fact that's actually what led me to the law um, as, a, as a degree. I started a Bachelor of Criminology and Criminal Justice and decided I much prefer the legal aspect to the coursework and I'm very sorry to say that, no offence to the criminologists listening. Um, I specifically got into the area of post-conviction review through my practical legal training at the University of Newcastle Legal Centre, uh, while I was a student at um, the university. I was lucky enough to meet two criminal law barristers, uh, Isabel Reid and Robert Kavanagh, who had been working on the case of Kathleen Folby for a number of years. I then did placement with them and um, it really just solidified my interest in criminal law and specifically cases where a miscarriage of justice um, has occurred.
0: So what is a post-conviction review and why is it so important?
1: Well, I'm going to give you a fairly basic summary, um, which can't contain sort of all the relevant parts, but we'll just sort of go over it in a cursory way. Um, So it's... I'm going to focus on the situation, as in Kathleen Folbig's case, where a person maintains they're innocent for the crimes of which they are convicted. So the post-conviction review stage usually occurs after a person has exhausted their court appeal avenues, but they still maintain they're innocent. In New South Wales, unlike other states and territories in Australia, we have a piece of legislation called the Crimes, Appeal and Review Act. This piece of legislation basically allows a person to either petition the governor of the state or to apply to the Supreme Court to ask for a review of their conviction or convictions. Uh, So for a review to be approved, doubt or question about the person's guilt must exist in the mind of the decision maker. If such a doubt or question exists, an inquiry can be ordered or it can be dealt with as an appeal. An inquiry is established to look into the conviction of a person Um, So the the relevant evidence um, at trial and and a range of different other things if there's fresh evidence. A judicial officer is appointed to preside over an inquiry um, and after the conclusion of the inquiry they usually provide a report of their findings. So whether they were satisfied that there was reasonable doubt or not. So, a judicial officer is appointed to preside over an inquiry, and at the conclusion of the hearings, they provide a report. So, that is to conclude whether they do have reasonable doubt about the person's convictions or they don't. So, in the circumstance where they do, they can review. They can, sorry, send the uh, case to the Court of Criminal Appeal um, to consider if the convictions should be quashed or not. So the Governor of the, estate of the State and the Attorney General have the decision-making power over review mechanisms and it's really more so the Attorney General. He, provides the, he or she provides the advice to the Governor on what um, he or she may do about uh, the review. Many academic commentators though have questioned the legitimacy of having executive government um, actors responsible for the review of convictions. So it's really my view that in Australia we should adopt a Criminal Cases Review Commission as has already been established in the United Kingdom, Scotland, Norway and New Zealand and probably pretty soon in Canada because they're looking into establishing one there. In my view it's a really pioneering form of review and it's one which would allow greater independence, transparency and accountability at the post conviction review stage. That's kind of a bit about post-conviction review or where we should be headed. Um, I guess the next next logical question, in fact I think it's what you asked, is why is it important? So post-conviction review is extremely important because all legal systems make mistakes. Even appeal courts can get it wrong. So it's essential that we have further independent, transparent and accountable avenues to assure that people can challenge their conviction um, even after many years when they've still maintained their innocence.
0: So, Ronnie, you're currently working on the case of Kathleen Folbig. For those who aren't familiar with Kathleen, who is she?
1: So, Kathleen Folbig, um, in 2003, was convicted of three counts of murder, one count of manslaughter and one count of grievous bodily harm in relation to her four infant children. Her children were Caleb, Patrick, Sarah and Laura, and they each died at different ages over a period of approximately 10 years. At trial, the prosecution argued that Ms Folbig smothered each of them. Um, and in order to prove that the four children were smothered, the prosecution focused on the rarity of three or more children from the one family dying of SIDS, so from um, unexplained causes. Um, evidence from experts to indicate the rarity of multiple SIDS in one family has since actually proven to be inaccurate though. Um, it should be noted that there is actually no direct evidence that Miss Fulby smothered any of her children. And more importantly, recent evidence has been found from leading experts in genetics that indicates that children have died from natural causes. It really further explaining what, that we already knew that they died from natural causes. And I think that this is what is largely so fascinating about this case, and it's also extremely tragic. So in my view, there is a woman languishing in prison, and she has been for 18 years, because there is no evidence of what the state alleges she did. Um, I consider it to be a very serious miscarriage of justice.
0: It's an unimaginable circumstance to lose four children at different times across ten years and then be put in prison when it can be proved that she's not responsible.
1: It's an unimaginable pain that I think really virtually no one can relate to Um, and this is just reinforcing why it is so important that we have really robust post-conviction review mechanisms to ensure that... um, convictions are appropriate and safe in in this state.
0: This podcast is proudly sponsored by Espresso Warriors Katara. Rani, what's your go-to coffee order?
1: Absolutely a small flat white every time. (laughs) Yeah, fairly uninteresting, but it is a reliable coffee.
0: And I'm sure there's many small flat whites throughout the week. (laughs) Yeah,
1: very. Many, multiple in a day sometimes. In
0: 2019, Kathleen's post-conviction review begins. What happens here?
1: Okay, so taking you back a bit uh, before 2019, in 2015 Ms Fulby's legal representatives petitioned the Governor of New South Wales for an inquiry into her convictions. So in August 2018, an inquiry was ordered and the substantive hearings took place over about three weeks from March 2019. So this inquiry uh, heard from a range of experts including forensic pathology, neurology, genetics, cardiology, immunology and infection. And Ms Fulbing also gave evidence over about three days about her diaries. So it would really take weeks to summarize all the evidence given at the inquiry Um, but importantly three highly respected and internationally recognized forensic pathologists professors Cordner, Hilton and DeFlew gave evidence which indicated a natural cause of death for each of the Fulbing children. Further Professor Karola Vinwesa and her colleague Dr Todor Arsov, uh, two world-leading um, immunologists and geneticists, gave evidence which further explained how a lethal cardiac mutation, the CALM2 mutation commonly known, was inherited from Kathleen and contributed to events leading to the deaths of Sarah and Laura Folbig. So the Commission of the Inquiry, Reginald Blanche, concluded that he had no reasonable doubt about Miss Folbig's convictions. He said basically, well, I'll actually uh, state it verbatim, the evidence at the inquiry does not cause me to have any reasonable doubt as to the guilt of Kathleen Megan folbig for the offences of which she was convicted. Indeed, as indicated, the evidence which has emerged at the inquiry, particularly her own explanations and behaviour in respect of the diaries, makes her guilt of these offences even more certain. In my professional view, this conclusion is perplexing, given the weight of the medical and scientific evidence which indicated that natural causes of death are for each of the children. This is even more puzzling, considering that there is no direct evidence that she smothered any of the children. Now, having read Miss Folbig's diary in full, I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist, but they are completely unremarkable if you read them in their entirety. Yet the prosecution at trial and subsequent judicial opinion seems to think differently about that. We have recently obtained some expert opinion for the first time in the case history about the diaries, which indicates that there is nothing in her writings to indicate murder or that Ms. Folbig even has any buried hostility or rage in relation to the children. Um, So a forensic psychiatrist who also uh, gave a report at the 2019 inquiry did not detect any psychosis or anything that would suggest that she is a killer in and of herself. Um, so all the so for anyone who is really interested in this case, I do encourage you to read for yourself the evidence um, uh, that was heard at the inquiry, and you can find that all on the internet. If you go into your browser and type in Inquiry into the Convictions of Kathleen being Folbig, you'll find the official website containing all of the expert reports, transcripts from every day of the proceedings submission made by the parties, etc. So um, jump on there and have a further read.
0: There's a petition backed by more than 100 scientists to have Folbing's case reviewed. What will this process entail?
1: So in March this year, my colleague Dr Robert Kavanagh and I wrote a petition to the Governor of New South Wales asking for Miss Folbing to be pardoned. Um, So we did that on the basis that there has always been natural causes of death for the children, but a new genetic study um, about Sarah and Laura Folbig only further proves, uh, or reinforces rather, that um, this is a case of natural cause of death and not smothering. So pardoning in, so what a pardon means is for, we want Miss Folbig to be released from prison. if she is pardoned, that does not mean that her convictions are automatically removed. She will still need to go to the Court of Criminal Appeal to have her convictions quashed. Uh, so, our petition has been supported by over 150 world-leading Australian and international scientists and medical practitioners. I think this is really a testament, well in my view at least, <laughs> uh, to the strength of this new It should be pointed out that there always has been natural causes of death ascribed for the children. I keep saying that because I think it's a really uh, big point that people need to know about this case. Um, And this genetic evidence about the CALM 2 mutation, which is a lethal cardiac mutation, helps us further explain the way in which the two girls died. Um, Southern Unexpected Infant Death is a very difficult area. It always has been, and it's likely to remain that way. Uh, But in saying that, knowledge does increase hugely each year about um, the ways we should understand sudden and unexpected infant death. And that was demonstrated at the inquiry with the developments in genetics. So this petition for pardon currently sits with the New South Wales Attorney General, Mark Speakman, and he has to give advice to the governor, Margaret Beasley, on what she should do about it. There are a few outcomes available to uh, the decision makers. We are specifically asking for Kathleen to be pardoned because there's no basis in our view of why she should remain in prison. Um, And also we will be wanting to go to court of criminal appeal to have her convictions quashed. Um, So if she's not pardoned though, that Robert and I are not going to give up and we will continue to assist her to achieve justice. Um, And to be very clear, not receiving a pardon does not uh, end the legal avenues available to this public.
0: That's fantastic. I think we don't hear often enough about the other side of innocence. So it's absolutely incredible that you're doing this. So it's been proven that Kathleen and her daughters possess the genetic mutation that led to their death. How can the deaths of her sons be explained? Well, I
1: think there's a bit of confusion. Uh, I think that well, I think there's been a bit of confusion over the years in this case around what is medically required and possible. I want to be very clear about this there does not need to be one unifying cause of death for all the children. To have either all the children died of one cause or the alternate is suffocation or murder is actually just plainly ridiculous and defies reason, frankly. Um, so the boys, uh, they possess uh, two rare genes in the BSN, uh, otherwise known as bassoon family. Um, I'm not a geneticist, but I understand that they are associated with epilepsy. We do know that Patrick's autopsy results indicated his death was due to epilepsy and um, Caleb's cause of death was ascribed as SIDS. So the BSN genes are currently, as we speak, under scientific investigation, but the preliminary results are are interesting. These investigations into the BSN genes, like uh, was undertaken for the carm 2 gene, will help to further explain how the children died.
0: Why is it that this evidence has only been discovered now? Well, each year
1: advances in science and medicine are being made not only um, in knowledge about how children die, for example, but through the development of new technology. So since 2003, huge advances have been made in the fields of, of genetics in particular. The human genome is now able to be sequenced and rare mutations can be detected that we couldn't have even imagined years before. The inquiry in 2019 was made aware that there were instances of calm related deaths of infants um, who died while asleep. So these were recorded through uh, the International Registry of Calm Deaths. Um, This evidence indicated that Sarah Nora's death fell within the known cases recorded internationally and the world leader, Professor Peter Schwartz, who's a cardiac geneticist, and the world leading authority on calm deaths wrote to the inquiry and to advise them that Sarah and Laura's um, calm 2 mutation that was inherited from Kathleen was really significant. Uh, the inquiry, however, declined to reopen its hearings to hear more from Professor Schwartz on this issue. So in November last year, a group of 27 scientists from around the world uh, published a study uh, that they did on the calm 2 mutation, specifically in Sarah and Laura Fulbig. They published their findings in a highly reputable Oxford University journal, and they concluded that the carm 2 mutation is a reasonable and likely cause of death for Sarah and Laura. So since the study was published, amazingly, it's been the most cited study in the last five years in this journal and there has been no challenge or criticism to that paper. So that, I guess you can reasonably infer, it means that it's been accepted by the worldwide scientific and medical communities as a very um, reliable piece of science.
0: Considering that and this evidence, why hasn't the case been closed? Well, that is a
1: very good question and one I unfortunately do not have the answer to. Um, as I've said, it's perplexing that a person can be convicted where there is no evidence of what it is alleged that they've done. Ms. Folbig, in my professional opinion, should never have even been charged. When infants die unexpectedly, there needs to be more of a focus on investigating why the infant died, instead of rushing to blame someone, um, which in my view is what happened here in Ms. Folbig's case. 150 leading scientists and medical practitioners seem to think there is enough scientific and medical proof to rule this out as a case of murder. So really the question remains is, why is the legal system not listening to this? Um, I I still maintain that Kathleen Folby's case establishes a really dangerous precedent, that the state is able to convict a person with no evidence that supports the case theory put by the prosecution, which in Ms Folby's case was that she smothered all four children. in, in Miss Folbig's case, uh, the conviction relied heavily on subjective and non-expert interpretations of circumstantial evidence, um, being you know, Meadows Law as well, which is known as the proposition that one infant death is a tragedy, two is suspicious, and third is murder until proven otherwise, which was discredited actually before Miss Folbig's trial. But that did pervade the reasoning throughout her case history. And also there was a huge heavily reliance on her vague journal entries, which contained no admissions of guilt. Uh, but that was used as a substitute uh, for a lack of medical evidence for smothering, in my opinion.
0: There's no doubt that this is such an important case. Who else is supporting this?
1: The response to the petition in March from scientists, medical practitioners and the media has been nothing short of extraordinary. In 2019, when we ran the inquiry for Ms. Folbig The media was concerned to tell a story of Australia's worst female serial killer and the most hated woman in Australia. Now, since the petition, media is directed at questions relating to Ms Folbig's innocence. This is an incredible feat in and of itself, in my opinion. Um, If the media stories are representative of the broader population uh, about their opinions, it would suggest that people are now asking really important questions about the safety of Ms Folbig's convictions. The Australian Academy of Science is the foremost scientific institution in Australia. It has strongly supported the scientific evidence of the carm 2 mutation in the deaths of Sarah and Laura. Um, we, as signatories to the petition, we have Nobel Laureates, former Australians of the year, and leading experts in uh, a range of different fields. Some of the amazing names that have signed onto this petition is Professor John Shine, the Uh, head of the Australian Academy of Science, Professor Elizabeth Blackburn, Peter Doherty, Ian Chubb and Fiona Stanley. These are just some of the most recognised uh, scientists in history, Uh, so that that to me speaks volumes. Um, They all consider the evidence, uh, the two evidence, to be quite compelling. Also, in addition to that amazing lineup of people, we have 66 fellows of the New South Wales Royal Society who have also supported the petition on the basis of the medical and scientific information. It's my understanding also that scientific and medical communities across the globe are actually watching this case and keeping a very watchful eye on New South Wales to see what happens. So it's safe to say that the spotlight is squarely on um, the Attorney General Mark Speakman and the Governor Margaret Beasley who have the power to release Kathleen Folby.
0: As criminologists, in what areas can we improve or change to avoid similar miscarriages of justice occurring?
1: Well, I think you criminologists do a pretty good job, I have to say. So, <laughs> I think it's important that uh, lawyers and criminologists work together to understand how and why miscarriages of justice occur and to be able to translate this for the broader public. Criminologists, from my understanding of your expertise, you're able to examine systemic issues that lead to miscarriages of justice, and I think it's incredibly important that, uh, that your field continue to share what you know. Interdisciplinary work between criminology and the law is also important to advocate for reform. Broader public knowledge about the flaws of our legal system can and does lead to change, but it's by making uh, the public aware of what happens. Because it is something that um, unless you're working in the field, you don't understand quite as in depth. So it's important that we translate this for the broader public.
0: I'm certain that budding lawyers listening to this episode will be inspired by your achievements, Rani. What advice can you give to them?
1: Well, that's very kind. I think my uh, success thus far has been a combination of, yes, hard work, but also great opportunity that I, I was given. So in light of that, I've got three pieces of advice directed predominantly for students, but people also in their early career as well. Uh, Make and take opportunities in areas that interest you. Don't just do something because it looks good on paper. Being authentic to what interests you will reveal your passion and people really do notice this. So that's number one. Two, generate a network of people among different disciplines who you respect professionally and also within your discipline, of course. They will be invaluable in both the good and hard times. Having people you trust to bounce ideas off is essential to professional development. And number three, I know this is cliche, but I really mean it. Don't be afraid to think outside the box. The best lawyers and indeed I'm sure the best criminologists are the ones who are creative and they challenge the status quo. Don't just accept something because it's the way it's always been done. Have a look at it critically and think if there's other ways that it can be done to better achieve uh justice or reflect the standards of society that always are continually shifting so that is my advice
0: rani i can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast and the best of luck with the rest of the case
1: thank you it's been an absolute pleasure to be here and i hope that i can come on another episode and update you uh fingers crossed when kathleen is uh,
0: released from prison i look forward to it thank you Social Science Week is being held from today, the 6th of September, until Friday the 10th. As part of a host of online events that the Social Sciences Department are running, the Criminology Faculty, in conjunction with the CCJS, are running an online panel about the case of Kathleen Folbig. You can find out more about the event and access tickets via our Facebook page. And whilst you're on our social media, keep an eye out for our advocacy workshop that is coming up in October.